Well, if you'd take your Bibles and turn to Joshua chapter 9, that will be our text this morning. If uh, you're visiting with us, we preach through books of the Bible, and right now I'm preaching through the book of Joshua, and we've come to this ninth chapter. So let's begin by reading it together. Joshua chapter 9, this is the word of the Lord. As soon as all the kings who are beyond the Jordan, in the hill country, and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning, And went and made ready provisions, and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys, and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet, and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, and said to him, and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and, our inhab- and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you, but now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them, and made a covenant with them, and let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that They were their neighbors, and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephirah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them and said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed. And some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, 
because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the the land and to destroy all its inhabitants of the land from before you, so we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place he should choose. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. Let me ask his blessing upon it now. Father, as we come to this chapter of scripture, we know it is breathed out by you and that it is profitable for us as your people to equip us not only for the knowledge of you, but for every good work. And we pray that you would use this chapter in our lives today like nourishment to our souls. Please feed us and help us to take it to heart and not just to be hearers of the word, but doers of it. And so we pray this in Jesus' name for our good and for your glory. Amen. Have you ever done something that has resulted in lifelong consequences? It's easy to see how this can happen with more significant acts of wrongdoing. You know, fornication can lead to a teenage pregnancy, or high-stakes gambling can lead to financial ruin, or a night of drunken revelry can lead to an arrest and jail time. But sometimes the wrong done might seem relatively small in the moment. Uh, An incautious word can permanently damage a person's reputation. An ill-advised social media post, to use a modern example, could lead to division in a family. A text sent while driving could result in a deadly accident. It may even be that the act itself isn't so much wrong as unwise. Perhaps, for instance, You move your family to a new city to take a promotion at work, only to find out when you get there, there's no healthy church to attend. Or maybe you marry a professing Christian whom you found attractive, but turned out to have dubious character and really no interest in the Lord. Or possibly you make an ill-advised financial investment that ends up putting serious strain upon your family. Such acts, though not necessarily sinful, can have long-lasting negative consequences. And none of us are exempt from these types of things. We can all do foolish and wrong things which turn out to have lasting or even permanent consequences in our lives. The question is, is there hope for us when this happens? Or more pertinently, what would God have us to do moving forward from such tragic failures? Well, Joshua 9 has something to say to this issue. And I want to show you what I mean, first of all, by going back and walking through the story and unpacking its details a little further, and then we'll return and consider its main lessons for us. So, remember I mentioned way back in the introduction to this series And on several occasions after that, that 
the first half of the book of Joshua, Joshua 1 through 11, can itself be broken up into two halves. So chapters 1 through 5 are all about the Lord leading the nation of Israel across the Jordan River into the promised land under Joshua. And then the second half, chapters 6 through 11, is all about the Lord leading Israel to conquer the land of Canaan under Joshua. So chapters 1 through 5, crossing. Chapters 6 through 11, conquest. Now, over the last several weeks, we've been in that second half of the first half of the book of Joshua. And we've been reading about Israel's conquest of the land of Canaan under Joshua by the power of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, so far in chapters 6 through 8, the Lord has given the cities of Jericho and Ai into their hands. Chapter 9 now picks up the story at that point, after the Lord had given them those two cities. Now, in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, if you look again at those verses, it says this, As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland and all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, heard of this, that is, heard of Israel's conquest and complete destruction of Jericho and I, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. You know, a lot has made, been made in the commentaries on this chapter about how this seems to be in contrast with prior descriptions of the Canaanites being in dread of the Israelites. In here, they're gathering together to fight against them. But you know, I don't think those two are actually incompatible just because they were afraid didn't mean they weren't going to put up a fight. Indeed, the fact that you see all of the Canaanites here being described as joining forces against the nation of Israel, these nomadic tribes coming out of the desert, shows just how afraid of them they were. But the more important thing to notice about how the rest of the Canaanites responded to Israel's conquest of Jericho and Ai is that it ensured their destruction. And this, in fact, was actually from the Lord. You know, this is actually explained later on in the book. At the end of the conquest, in chapter 11, verse 19, it says this, There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel. You know, you'd think that somewhere along the line, as they were defeating king after king, that some of these peoples in Canaan would decide just to seek peace, but none of them do. And then the text explains why in verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. This is what theologians have sometimes called judicial hardening. In other words, hardening of heart that is actually part of a just punishment from God. You know, we see this multiple times in the scriptures. Uh, sometimes it's with an individual, perhaps most famously of all with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
but also with groups, as we see here with the Canaanites. And what we see is that they will get to a point in their sin against the Lord in which the Lord resolves to punish them for their sin no matter what. And on these occasions, the Bible hearts even further so that they will not repent but will succumb to his judgment. Be careful that you don't hear that and think, well, that's not fair. Remember, God doesn't owe sinners mercy. After all, mercy is by definition undeserved, right? If it was deserved, it wouldn't be mercy. It would be justice. And it is God's right as the creator, as the judge of all mankind, to not show mercy, but instead to give sinners the just punishment that they deserve instead. What we're seeing here is that sometimes that punishment will include a hardened heart, which ensures that they will not repent, even in the face of assured destruction. In other words, judicial hardening. Now, there's a sense in which chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, as we read about the Canaanites joining forces against the Israelites like this, it really sets the stage for the rest of the conquest, for everything that is going to happen going forward in chapters 9 through 11. But most immediately, these two verses are placed here to prepare you for the events described here in chapter 9. Because unlike the rest of the Canaanites who joined forces to fight the Israelites, there was one group of Canaanites who took a different approach. So we read in verses 3 through 4, But, in contrast, when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning. Now, there is still some debate about it, but it is likely that archaeologists have actually discovered this ancient city of Gibeon. As they excavated a site that's now called El Jib, um, archaeologists discovered in a well uh, several dozen jar handles that had broken off of jars, ancient pottery, which had the Hebrew name of Gibeon, that city, on them. It's interesting that these types of discoveries, they're a reminder to us, aren't they, that these stories in the Bible are rooted in history. In fact, to the surprise of many more liberal scholars who just assume that the stories in the Bible were ancient myths, you know, made up, like something like, you know, the Greek myths, the relatively recent discipline of archaeology continues to dig up in the Middle East artifacts which confirm again and again the people and the places and the events recorded in the Bible. Sometimes very large details like the identity of whole people groups. Sometimes very small details like the identity of a single character in the Bible whose name pops up on some piece of pottery or clay digged up uh, out of some ruins in the Middle East. Now, assuming that these ruins of El Jib are the ancient city of Gibeon, well, then the city 
lay about eight miles southwest of Ai. But as chapter 9 unfolds, you discover that actually the inhabitants of Gibeon that are mentioned there in verse 3 refer to people that were living in a group of cities, four cities, of which Gibeon was probably the most prominent and the dominant. And you can see them identified there in verse 17. They are Gibeon, Chephirah, Beeroth, and Kariath Jerem. We also discover in verse 7 that the inhabitant of these four cities were Hivites, one of the six people groups identified in verse 1. So these were among the inhabitants of Canaan whom the Lord had commanded Israel to completely destroy. But when this group of Hivites, called the inhabitants of Gibeon there in verse 3, when they heard about Israel's defeat of Jericho and Ai, they didn't join with the rest of the Canaanites uh, to try to save their lives by fighting the Israelites. Instead, they chose a different tactic. As it says there in verse 4, they on their part acted with cunning. It's the same word, by the way, used to describe the serpent back in Genesis 3, described crafty, cunning, deceptive. In other words, the Gibeonites tried to save themselves from the Israelites through trickery rather than force, which if you think about it is a little bit ironic after what happened in the last chapter. Israel had used a ruse to conquer I in chapter 8, and now in the very next chapter, we see that they are fooled by a ruse into letting the Gibeonites live in chapter 9. When you think back to Israel's forefather, Jacob, we see the same thing happening now with the entire nation. The deceiver has become the deceived. Now, the ruse that the Gibeonites used is described there in verses 4 through 6. And essentially, they put on worn-out clothes and took old food to make it look like they had been on a very long journey. And then they came to Israel's camp in Gilgal, just across the Jordan, adjacent to Jericho. And they said to Joshua, We have come from a distant country. So now, make a covenant with us. Now, that phrase, make a covenant with us, uh, literally in the Hebrew, cut a covenant with us, that referred to a solemn agreement, uh, in, these, in this case, uh, between two nations, which would be guaranteed by an oath and enforced by certain penalties. In fact, the language of cutting a covenant may be a reference to this ritual in which you would cut animals in half, separate their body parts, and then the participants in the covenant would pass through the severed pieces of the animals to indicate what would happen to them if either party violated the terms of the covenant. One remembers how that ritual was used by God in Genesis 15 when he cut a covenant with Abraham. But as soon as the readers hear the Gibeonites ask Joshua, make a covenant with us, alarm bells should be going off in our heads. 
We just had an illustration. (laughs) Because this was the very thing that the Lord had repeatedly prohibited the Israelites from doing. Exodus 23, verses 31 through 33. Listen to what the Lord had said to Israel. I will give you the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Again, Exodus 34, verse 12, the Lord said to Israel, Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. Or again, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 2-4, through four, the Lord said to the Israelites about the Canaanites, He said, When the Lord your God gives them over to you, you shall defeat them. Then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn you away from, turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. You see, the message was clear. The Lord warned Israel again and again not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of Canaan, but instead to completely destroy them. Why? Because if they agreed to let them live, then eventually the inhabitants of Canaan would intermarry with them and lead them astray into idolatry, which would evoke God's judgment upon them. And now we have these inhabitants of Canaan asking Joshua to make a covenant with them. You see? To agree, to let them live with them in the land and not destroy them. This, you see, was a very dangerous moment for Israel. It was really a crisis point in their history, which would have huge ramifications going forward. A wrong decision here could have permanent consequences for the nation. Now, of course, the problem was Joshua and the other leaders of Israel who had to decide what to do with this request, they didn't know that these were Canaanites standing in front of them because they were claiming to be from a distant country and they had disguised themselves to look like they'd been on a long journey. While Israel knew, of course, that they couldn't make a covenant with the inhabitants of Canaan, that policy didn't actually apply with people who lived far away, who lived outside of the land. In fact, the Lord had actually explicitly instructed Israel back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10 through 15, that when it comes to nations that were far away, who weren't in the land, well, they were actually to offer terms of peace to those cities. And if they accepted them, then they were to allow them to live. So if these strangers in worn-out clothes, claiming to be from a distant country, were telling the truth, well, then Joshua and the Israelites should agree to grant their request for a peace treaty. However, we see from verse 7 that Israel was suspicious about these Gibeonites, that they weren't maybe telling the truth. And there it says in verse 7, But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, 
Perhaps you live among us. How can we make a covenant with you then? And Joshua follows that up, of course, in verse 8 by asking them direct question. Where, who are you really? Where have you come from? And then you have this lengthy response by the Gibeonites. You know, it's a masterful spinning of a story. Very convincing. You see it there in verses 9 through 13. It takes up a chunk of the chapter. And they reiterate that they are from a distant country in verse 9. And then in verses 9 through 11, they explain why they had come so far to make peace with the Israelites. Because you can see that's really probably the reason for doubt. Well, if you are from a distant country, why would you come all the way here to, to make peace with us? And they explain how they had heard that Israel's God had destroyed the Egyptians at the Exodus and how they had uh, the Lord had destroyed those two great Amorite kings who lived just east of the Jordan River, Sihon and Og. And notice they scrupulously steer away from mentioning anything about their victories over Ai or Jericho because if they didn't live in the land, well, they wouldn't know anything about those. And then they explain that having heard about what Israel's God had done to these other powerful countries, their leaders sent them to guarantee their own security by agreeing to serve Israel. They would say, we are your servants, we are your slaves. And in in exchange for a covenant guaranteeing peace between the two nations. Finally, in verses 12 and 13, they, they point to their worn-out clothing and to their old crumbly provisions as evidence that they had indeed come from a faraway country, that they were telling the truth. So, the trap is set. Israel, like a wily fox, is looking into the trap deciding whether to go in, and they go right into it. There it says, And Joshua made peace with them, and made a covenant with them, to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Now those words should make the hearts of believing readers sink, because it records a wrong decision on Israel's part, that would have lasting consequences for the nation. And in case we might protest and say, yeah, but they can't be responsible for this. They didn't know. They were tricked by the Gibeonites. The author makes a very telling remark in verse 14. Look there again. He explains why Israel was indeed responsible for what had happened here. He says, so the, men have, so the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. You know, way back in Numbers, chapter 27, verse 21, we're told that God had provided a mechanism by which Israel's human leader, at that time Moses, and then later on Joshua, could inquire of the Lord. And there it said in that verse, Numbers 27, 21, He shall stand before Eliezer the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. So when Israel was faced with a difficult decision, they didn't know what to do, Joshua could go to the priest, 
who would then in turn ask the Lord using what's called the Urim. Now, the Urim was apparently like sticks that you, the priest would cast into the lap, and the Lord would reveal his will to the priest regarding the matter in question by determining what way the sticks fell. It was called casting lots in other contexts. And you'll actually remember that this was the way that the Lord revealed that Achan had stolen some of the devoted things when they conquered Jericho. This is back in chapter 7. But ironically, tragically, though Joshua and the nation of Israel had already suffered a terrible defeat when they attacked Ai, Without inquiring of the Lord first, it appears that he still hadn't learned his lesson. Because here we see him again, once again, making another difficult decision with significant ramifications for the whole future of the nation without inquiring of the Lord first. Instead, the text tells us that he and the other leaders of Israel relied upon their own judgment. As it says, the men took some of their provisions, right? They, they examined the provisions of the Gibeonites to try to evaluate whether they were telling the truth. But, it says, they did not ask counsel from the Lord. Now, they didn't know it at the time. But Joshua and the other leaders of Israel had done what the Lord had explicitly and repeatedly told them not to do. They had made a covenant with inhabitants of Canaan. They had sworn an oath to them to let them live. And if what the Lord had repeatedly warned came true, this tragic act would end up having permanent consequences for the nation going forward because eventually the Canaanites would lead successive generations of Israelites into idolatry to worship their gods and bring judgment upon Israel. And of course, if you read the storyline of the Old Testament, did that happen? Yes, indeed it did. And though Joshua, the leaders of Israel, they didn't mean to do it. They were tricked by the Gibeonites. But they were culpable for this terrible, this tragic decision because they had relied on their own judgment to make it rather than asking the Lord for guidance. In verse 16, it says, At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. So three days after making this very ill-advised, indeed disastrous covenant with the Gibeonites, Joshua and the other leaders of Israel realized they had been tricked. You know, one imagines, we're not told how it happened, but that perhaps Joshua sent some of his you know, wily soldiers say, just follow them, will you? Just to make sure that they actually go out of the land. And what they find out is that they go to cities just a mere 20 miles away from them, right in the land of Canaan. Well, humiliated, outraged, the Israelites immediately left to confront the Gibeonites, and you see it there in verse 17. Now at this point, When you look at verses 18 through 21, you see that there's some conflict between the people of Israel and their leaders. The people wanted to attack the Gibeonites, but the leaders restrained them from doing so because they had to tell the people that they had made a covenant with these cities. 
We see it there in verses 19 through 20. All the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. So the Israelite leaders had sworn an oath before the Lord not to attack the Gibeonites. They knew that if the nation of Israel attacked the Gibeonites now, having sworn this oath, they would be violating this solemn covenant they had made before God, and God's wrath would then break out against them. In fact, it's very interesting that that actually did happen later on in the history of Israel. The incident is recorded in 2 Samuel 21, during the time of David. You know, generations later, it turns out that in the reign of David, there was this extended famine. It lasted three years. And finally, David, not understanding what was going on, inquired of the Lord about it. And the Lord said that the reason for the famine was that Saul had tried to wipe out the Gibeonites even though Israel had sworn to spare them back in the days of Joshua. And David had to put seven of Saul's male descendants to death to satisfy the curse of the covenant they had made before God would lift the famine. See, this, you see, it's the kind of thing the leaders of Israel were afraid of, and rightly so, would happen to the nation if they attacked the Gibeonites now in chapter 9. They had made a covenant of peace with the Gibeonites, as ill-advised as it was. And part of that covenant is that they had sworn an oath before Yahweh to let them live. And however foolish that oath might have been, they were obligated to keep it. You know, I realize it can be difficult for us as Christians living in the modern West to understand the importance of not breaking an oath, right? Right? In secular societies where belief in God has waned, people become more cavalier about these things. Oaths have become frivolous. I mean, how often do you hear people say, oh no, I swear to you. And you still don't really know if they're telling the truth. Breaking your word becomes really no big deal. People do it all the time if it's in their self-interest to do it. Any idea that not keeping your word would be wrong before God and might even evoke his just judgment against you, that's laughed at. That's just superstition. But you know, we as Christians, we have to take these matters more seriously because they matter to God, apparently, from his word. Think about it. God is faithful. He always does what he says. He never violates his commitments. And remember, God has said to us, his new covenant people, be holy as I am holy. This means that Christians are to be faithful. It's a fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? How? By keeping our commitments, just like God does. It's true. Both Jesus and James did instruct us as Christians not to swear oaths, But this wasn't because it's inherently wrong to swear an oath or that we should never, ever do it because there are other passages where we see oaths being sworn in the Scriptures, even in the New Testament. But the point of their teaching is that you shouldn't have to swear an oath because your word itself should be good. In other words, Christians should be such faithful people 
that their word is good enough. They don't need to say, I swear, I really will do it. James puts it this way in James 5.12. He says, Do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Do you notice that last part? Brothers and sisters, people should be able to count on us to do what we say, even if it turns out to be costly for us to do. We should not be known as unfaithful people, people who don't follow through on their commitments, people who break their word. If we have sworn an oath before God, you know, like we do when we get married, or if you serve in the courtroom, or in civil service, we should have a healthy fear of breaking that oath, lest we experience the discipline of the Lord who takes these matters very seriously. Here's a psalm, Psalm 15, verse 4, which describes a person who walks blamelessly and does what is right. And one of the things that it says is that he is one who swears to his own hurt and does not change. In this way, you see, we reflect the faithful character of our God in our own lives. So the Israelites did not attack the Gibeonites because of the oath that they had taken, because they knew that to do so would be to respond to one bad decision with an even worse one. And so they simply had to live with the consequences of their foolish act and do what is right now moving forward. Now, that didn't mean that the Gibeonites got away scot-free. It's funny, I was thinking, I wrote that, and I thought, I wonder what that phrase, scot-free, means and where it came from. So I looked it up. It's a little bit funny, the idioms that we use. But the Gibeonites didn't get away scot-free. We see at the very end, verses 22 through 27, Joshua rebuked the Gibeonites for their deception, and he actually placed a curse on them so that they would be perpetual servants of the Israelites. They would cut wood and draw water, For the congregation, it says, and specifically for the altar of the Lord, wherever the Lord chose to set up his house. Now, not every curse that a person places on someone is effective. But this one appears to have been so because the Lord himself enforced it. The writer hints at that when he says that the Gibeonites were cutters of wood and drawers of water to this day. Well, we've walked through the story, chapter 9. Now let's just close by considering what is its main point? How does this apply to us today? And I think, actually, as I was working through this, I think there are two main points. One is sort of a secondary point, and then one is a primary point. And let's just start with the secondary point of this chapter. At the heart of this chapter, Joshua 9, obviously is this bad decision that Israel made making a covenant with the Gibeonites. And it had lasting consequences for the nation. And it's obvious that the author wanted us to see that the reason Israel made this bad decision was ultimately because they relied on their own judgment instead of taking counsel from the Lord. That comes out of that critical verse there in verse 14. They took some of their provisions and evaluated them, 
that they did not seek the counsel of the Lord. Now, believers like us who are reading this chapter, we're obviously meant to learn from that detail that we must do the opposite if we are going to avoid Israel's fate. God's people must learn, in other words, a pattern of relying not solely on our own judgment to guide us in life, in our spiritual life, but always seeking counsel from the Lord. You know, practically speaking, one of the things this is going to mean is that we as Christians will be people of prayer. You know, prayerlessness. If you ask yourself, do I really pray? And you say, oh, not very much. You know, one of the things that that reflects in your life is a spirit of self-reliance. If you're never praying to God or very infrequently, it shows that you're mostly trusting in yourself and thinking that you can get by without him. And of course, that's rooted in pride. In other words, prayerlessness reflects serious spiritual issues in our soul. Christians, rather, are to be humble people who recognize their utter dependence upon God and then show it by petitioning him to give them a heart of wisdom so that they could think properly about the matters of life and that praying that he would guide their feet when they don't know what way to go. Now, this doesn't mean that we pray before doing anything. Lord, should I make bacon this morning or go with pancakes? But it does mean that we, we should be people whose instinct in life is to, as Peter says, cast our cares upon the Lord and to pray for help before we act, rather than acting with a sort of, I got this brash self-sufficiency. Another way this lesson is going to work out practically is that it means that God's people, Christians, are to be people who are students of God's word in Scripture. And we look to the word of God and scripture as a sufficient guide to tell us what we should believe and how we should live as his people. So instead of trusting in our own judgment or looking to the ideas and philosophies of men and strategies of men, we should seek the counsel of the Lord. And he's spoken to us all that we need to know for life and godliness in the scripture. Now, that doesn't mean that we have nothing to learn from any other source on any subject, but it means that we have been given a sufficient revelation from God, which is able, as Paul says, to equip us for every good work, and that therefore we should rely upon it to guide us rather than simply trusting our own judgment. You know, Israel's wrong decision in Joshua 9 could have been avoided if they had simply inquired of the Lord for counsel. And in the same way, many, many wrong and foolish decisions that have lasting consequences in our lives could be avoided by Christians by seeking counsel from the Lord through prayer and the Scriptures. And brothers and sisters, I believe that the Spirit of God who dwells within us would lead us to be humble people who rely upon God to guide us. We should also note that the ultimate expression, the ultimate expression of proud, 
self-reliance is trusting in our own good works and our own inherent worth to make us right with God. You know, that wrong decision will land an unbeliever in hell, no matter how good a person they think they are. The fact is, is God has told us that we are all sinners. We sin every single day. The wages of sin, Paul says, is death. Why? Because God is far holier and sin is far worse than we ever imagined. And our only hope is to forsake any merit of our own works or any inherent worth that we have to make us right with God and instead to look to God and trust in Him wholly to provide us salvation through the perfect righteousness of His own Son, Jesus Christ. This is the gospel that God has given us salvation if we trust in Him through His Son, that Christ came and fulfilled God's commands perfectly on our behalf, and that Christ went to the cross and bore the full weight of the punishment that we deserve for our sins in our place. And now the good news is, not try to be better or try to be more religious so that you'll get right with God, but rather Repent of your sins and put your trust in Him, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved out of God's free favor as a gift, apart from anything you've done to deserve it. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So if you're here this morning and we're talking now about the danger of proud self-reliance, if you haven't done so, I pray you will stop relying upon your own works to make you right with God and trust in Jesus Christ to save you by His grace today. Well, that brings us finally to that, just what I think is the primary point as we look at Joshua 9. As I said before, at the heart of chapter 9 here is this terrible tragic decision that Israel had made, a decision which had had lasting consequences for the nation going forward. But the chapter also emphasizes how Israel responded to this bad decision. What did they do going forward? And what we see is that instead of compounding one wrong decision with another, instead of saying, well, that oath was foolish, they tricked us, and we'll go ahead and destroy the Gibeonites, instead what they did is they resolve, no, we've, we can't undo what's done, but we need to do what's right going forward. And so they kept their oath to the Gibeonites as hard as that was. And I think in this way they limited the damage and they found themselves in the right with God going forward. In fact, as we shall see next time, the Lord, it seems, even brought good out of this tragic mistake. You know, we all make bad decisions. I mentioned some at the beginning. Sometimes they're small, sometimes they're large. Sometimes they will have very lasting consequences on our life. And we need to ask ourselves, is there hope for us? What would God have us do going forward from such critical mistakes or sins in our life? Well, what we see here as we look at the Israelites 
rather than compounding one bad decision with the next, God would have us accept the consequences, commit to doing what's right before him moving forward, as Israel did. And in this way, we not only honor God, but we minimize the damage. And God will even bring forth good out of our tragic mistakes. You know, one commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, put it this way in his comments on this chapter. He said, We may be caught in a framework of our sin, wrong, and folly. Surely we need repentance and forgiveness. Yet eradication of guilt doesn't eliminate all the consequences of sin. We must therefore be faithful to God in the wake of our mistakes and be assured that his mercy does not cease because we have been wrong. We must glorify and magnify the grace of God in our messes. You know, when you find yourself in a place like Israel was, where you've made a terrible mistake, and you can never undo the consequences. You can know that God is gracious. He's willing to restore us when we sin. He will forgive us, first of all, based upon the sacrifice of His Son. And He's willing to lead us back onto those paths of righteousness for His namesake by the power of His Spirit when we acknowledge our sin and repent. You know, we are His children. We're His blood-bought people. He's not going to forsake us when we stumble. So when you make a wrong decision with lasting consequences, acknowledge your sin. Repent of it. Turn away from the path that you're on and seek to do what is right going forward by the strength of the Holy Spirit. That's the way forward. Let's pray together and I'm going to ask the men who are going to be serving communion to us this morning to come on up as I'm praying. Father, we thank you for your word, which is a light to our path. We thank you for the message of instruction that you give us in your word, and also the message of hope. Even as we see the failures of Israel, the failure even of Joshua, their leader, we are reminded of how much we need Christ, the greater Joshua, the one who has led us with perfect faithfulness who has gone to the cross to pay for all of our sins and failures, and who himself has been righteous for us so that his righteousness might be imputed to us, credited to us. We're grateful that in in the face of our failures that we have redemption through Christ and the hope that he will be steadfastly faithful to us and lead us all the way home by his grace and power. And Father, even as we come again to the Lord's Supper on this first Sunday of the month, we're grateful that here we're reminded of the source of redemption that we have through Christ. His broken body, His shed blood for us, that we might be saved. And we pray that You would seal these truths upon our hearts afresh, that You would meet with us in a special way as we eat the bread and drink the cup together. Minister to us, Lord. Feed our souls with it that we would have a time of communion with Christ together and that it would be a special source of grace and blessing to us. By your power, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.